right. So Jason, hey, for anyone who doesn't know Jason, although I know everybody does, Jason's a technology entrepreneur, angel investor, the host of the popular weekly podcast this week in startups. And I know you've invested in hundreds of startups. Last I checked, you've gotten seven unicorns in your portfolio, but you can update us on that if I'm off at all. Like 10 now, I think. I think it's 10 now. <laughs> Make, makes sense. Uh, like literally like two or three in the last quarter. Uh, Inflation. Cr crazy times here in Silicon Valley. <laughs> we'll get into that. So Jason also wrote an amazing book that I have read and interviewed you on called Angel, which is sort of the Thank you. preeminent Bible on startup investing. And he's been a great partner to, to Seed Invest and, and now Circle for, I don't know, five plus years or so now. And so it's always uh, always great to talk to you, Jason, and uh, look forward to jumping into it. I have one initial question for you, Yeah, which is uh, when I interviewed you back in July 2017 on your book about four and a half years ago now, you said you basically had, and you said this in your book as well, five more years of angel investing left. And by my count, we're just about there. So uh, are you <laughs> still considering retiring or what's going on? You know, I um, it's interesting. I had a discussion with my uh, partner, my wife, Jade, and I kind of think in five-year to 10-year increments. And I started thinking about like what's left. I've done investing for 11 years. Uh, before that was a journalist and entrepreneur, as you mentioned. And I really did a lot of reflecting over the pandemic as to what I really actually enjoy doing, which is something I think everybody should think about. Like what parts of the day do you actually enjoy most? And which ones do you enjoy least? I really do enjoy working with founders in the earliest stages, and I like seeing their companies grow. I also like podcasting and writing. So I'm trying to build a life where I get to do a little bit of each of those things because those are the things that make me professionally most happy. So long story short, I have built a team around me at launch and the syndicate, our investment arms, to do all the things that are just way too difficult for me to do. And so what are those things? Legal you know, just managing the influx of people trying to get a meeting, right? And and actually doing the first meetings because there's far too many people who want to pitch me than I could humanly meet with, right? It's just the nature of the job we all do as investors. So anyway, long story short, I think I'm going to go 10 more years. You know, I turned 50 and I, I think I got 10 years left in me. And I think I have some interesting ideas of what I want to do with those 10 years. And then I think maybe 60, I'll retire. Uh, my team laughed at that. Did you just turn 50? Or I don't know. When I, you I, yeah, I turned 50 last year in the middle of the pandemic. I turned 51 in um, November. So just a couple weeks ago. Yeah. So I just turned 52. And I turned 50 also, I should say, not 52. Yeah. But I, I think it's funny. Like, uh, there's a way, I don't know, maybe it's just us old timers in tech. But like, I sort of feel like now I'm like, you know what? I've got like a good 10, 20 years at least of productivity, so to speak. I mean, there's just so much to do. And it's such an interesting time. It's such an interesting time. It's like I coming back to your your point of just where do you find happiness? Yeah, and what could so be much more? creativity. It's just like you want to be doing that, right? What could be more interesting than this moment in time, right? I mean, yeah. it's like we're just so lucky, all of us on the call. You're a little bit younger, I think, Ryan. But I'm taking notes. Well, to be born like at the inception of the internet, and then you know before that, the inception of the personal computer, like these were two crazy, you yeah. know, disruptive things on our society, and and mobile, you know, was an extension of that. Yeah, but think about all the kids uh, who were born at the inception of crypto, and how big their lives are. Going to be. Well, it is a, uh, it's definitely there's something there in this you know, what's being loosely defined as web 3.0, this collection of technologies yeah, yeah. and philosophies. A lot of it's philosophies. And a lot of the philosophies are kind of how we started yeah. in Early the internet, 90s. which was, you know, do we really want to be in a walled garden? Do we want to be on AOL? 
No, we want an open platform. We don't want anybody to stop us. We want to be the rebels. We want to be the pirates. And I, I get that sense from this new group too. I mean, it's nuanced though. Yeah, no, totally, totally. Lots of, of echoes in that. I was, we had a congressional hearing in the whole crypto yes. uh, a couple couple of weeks ago or whatever. You did good. Thank you. But one of the things that came up was like, you know, one of the Congress people was asking, why is it that younger people and more minorities and others are adopting this compared to other financial products? And my view a little bit was, well, a lot of these are people who were born with the internet in their cribs, <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> I mean, like literally. And so their expectations about the way that how do you participate in the financial system are different. It should be more like the internet and investing too, right? It's a, like they just assume that the capital markets, as we think about those, are just something that is available that you can participate in and open democratized access is is there and, and transparent use and all these kinds of things, which I, I know we're going to come back to startup investing. No, I mean, I think the big picture is really important because it relates to startup investing. And if you think about this next generation and how financially literate they are, between Cash App, Robinhood, Coinbase, and they're just, you know, Wealthfront, they're really like across that suite of apps that's on their phone, they're doing a lot of playing around with you know, their own financial futures. Now, it's easy to be like, whoa, you just gave everybody the, something they're not capable of handling, like a car or a gun. But this is their money. They earned it. They have the right to deploy it as they see fit. And listen, what did we deploy it when we were kids? Like, maybe we played poker. Maybe we bet on sports. Maybe we bought Star Wars figures, whatever, bought beer. Young people today are like, you know, I really yeah. want to put some money into my Wealthfront account every month. I want to trade some crypto on Coinbase or Robinhood or however. And then they're like doing margin loans, puts, shorts, calls. And everybody's like, that you can't let them do that. And it's like, they would be in Vegas, like splitting eights, you know, like, yeah, totally. Let's not be so precious here. Let people learn and learning by doing is the best way to learn. Yeah, for sure. There was a piece I read actually this morning and it was a different context, but one of the things was sort of basically arguing like cloud regulation. This is a phrase I hadn't seen before. Cloud regulation is so much more effective than traditional regulation. And the examples given were taxis and hotels, right? So you know, these are classic, right? Taxis, like the whole purpose was, you know, you need a medallion and you know, you make sure the person's, you know, a fit person to drive a car or whatever. But like cloud regulations are AI signaling, ratings, constant, you know, incredible levels of visibility monitoring. And so like the amount of regulatory, in fact, the quality control that exists by these incredible multidimensional platforms that exist in the cloud, that exist in software, that exist with all the data that the internet has, just can, can actually deal with risk so much better than the kind of legacy institutional models. And I think there's a little bit of that here with financial markets, right? I mean, essentially the argument is what you're just sort of saying is internet cloud-based markets, right? Whether it's, you know, you're trading stocks or you're trading crypto or you're interacting with this, right? The pace with which these can iterate and provide, you know, a, a reasonable and safe experience to people and a place where people can learn really easily, just so far beyond the way yeah. a lot of these investor protection rules were even contemplated. I think you 
it really takes a moment to think holistically about what is the worst case scenario? What's the downside? What's realistic? And, you know, having been an investor in Uber, watching people criticize that new technology, that new system, or watching Airbnb, which I wasn't an investor in, but was fascinated by, you know, people were like, oh my God, you're going to get killed by a serial killer at Airbnb. Somebody's going to trash your apartment. People have died at Airbnbs. People have had their, you know, tragically their apartments uh, trash. By the way, that's happening in every hotel in the world. Like, murders, things are bad things happen in the world. So this idea that like there's some perfect level of protection is crazy. And then you think about taxis. Well, when I was in New York, it was well known that one person with the taxi medallion would have three or four other people using that taxi license. So if I had a taxi license and you and I looked close enough, I would lend it to you, my brother, my cousin, whatever. So you might have like one Russian guy and three other Russian guys who look similar and they would all use the same license. So I knew this because when I got into taxi cabs, I'd say, oh, hey, Jeremy. Person goes, oh yeah, no, my name's actually John. That's my cousins. And it wasn't like a big deal, but there was like this idea that, oh my God, the license was going to protect you. No, of course it wasn't. And then people in the boroughs couldn't get taxis. They were using what were called dollar cabs or gypsy cabs back then, uh, famously by Jay-Z in some of his songs. And you were getting in cars that didn't have insurance, that didn't have a licensed driver, like probably somebody who's not even a citizen in the United States, like an illegal immigrant. And it was like, okay, I'm, t- I'm assuming some level of risk here. I'm, I'm, I'm allowed to do that. When you'd look at financial markets, you know, these are global and there are big numbers. So I think you have to think about, okay, what is the big number here? Okay, well, there are some big numbers. Like, should Tether be completely unregulated and have, not have to answer to somebody? Like, I think hard no on that. Should people be able to put their entire net worth into one bet? I don't think they should be able to do that Vegas or on crypto or on stocks. So I don't know exactly how you regulate everything, but you're correct. Over time, the rating system in Uber, the rating system in Airbnb was actually better than the government system of regulation. These themes and arguments are the exact same thing we heard, you know, back in now 10 years ago when we were talking about what was, you know, not even the Jobs Act at the time. And, you know, basically these laws were largely passed in the 1930s when the popular technology was a telephone. And, you know, some snake oil salesman in Texas would call somebody up on the phone and try to get them all their money into some imaginary thing. And there was no way to sort of like research it or do any due diligence. And, you know, that's when these laws were passed. And uh, when we were having these conversations, you know, we sort of educated people, grandma will not lose all our money because some of these securities laws in the Jobs Act, they're limited. So you can only invest, you know, up to 10% of your income or net worth in an individual investment. So you're forced to diversify. I think we all think that's important. And separately, the amount of information that is at people's fingertips through the internet now is mind-blowing when you compare it to what you had in the 1930s, right, with the telephone. And if you look at just what's been happening with uh, online fundraising investing generally, I mean, there's been next to no cases of fraud. There's been actually the the success rate has been quite high, at least I could say on our platform. And uh, it's just stuff 10 years ago, people couldn't even imagine it because they just like you couldn't imagine getting in some random, you know, taxi cab through Uber uh, 10, 15 years ago. It's the same sort of themes. And I agree. It's a it's a balancing act, but a lot of people just sort of shy away to get altogether when it comes to change. Yeah, and we do have to think about regulations across these and think about it holistically, right? Where you have this concept of accredited investors, non-accredited investors, equity crowdfunding. You have to play by one set of rules, Ryan, and mm-hmm. people. It's arduous and painful. And then people can open up their Coinbase account and buy Dogecoin or Bitcoin or Ethereum, and they can make a bet on those projects. Right. It, it doesn't matter who they are. And so 
people who are running startups, who are taking a higher level of ownership, legal structures, et cetera, you know, basically are getting uh, killed by regulation. And then crypto people can do whatever they want. And that seems to me to be fundamentally unfair. And there's some middle ground between the two uh, that has to occur. The other thing that I think is just hard to argue at this point after what we've seen is like, this argument that if you don't have over a million dollars in the bank, like you're not intelligent and therefore <laughs> yeah. you have to be protected from taking any risk, even if you're doing it wisely and diversified, it's just so out of date at this point. Yeah, so we need 100%. to fix that still. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting just that the whole theme, like, and, and I think we, we chatted about this when you joined us for, for our other event, Jason, but like, you know, the internet is so good at creating long tail markets, right? In information and advertising and transportation and commerce and like all these things. And I sort of like think about at least what, what crypto is doing today and what's starting to happen with startup investing is sort of philosophically, right? There's long tail capital markets. Everyone who needs capital should be able to express that in a open market on the internet and people who want to invest capital everywhere should be able to kind of find and match to that. And, and you can structure it in different ways. But these kind of long tail markets with platforms that really can, you know, find ways to present information in a, in a reasonable way, with the right kinds of disclosures and community policing and other things that have made it possible to trust getting in a random stranger's car or trust that, you know, the Beanie Babies that you're buying are actually you're going to get them or what have you, you know. I feel like a lot of times in these conversations, we sort of say, oh, well, why don't we turn to, uh, let's get these rules updated with the SEC. Let's, you know, we need to update the laws, which is probably true. Like at some level, like they're so far behind where actual you know, behavior is. But at the same time, like, I always feel like it's also sort of incumbent on, on industry to just like build, demonstrate that you can actually, you know, make, make this, you know, reasonable and safe and well-educated and, and kind of lead from within. Yeah, you definitely uh, should be. I think we definitely need to think about regulations around this. That makes sense. Getting rid of the accreditation laws and just making it a test is really the most reasonable, I think, way to handle this. If everybody who is buying a crypto project, an equity crowdfunding, a stock, or you know, playing fantasy sports, understood compounding interest, the impact of fees over time, diversification. Diversification, liquidity, yeah. Exactly. And you can learn this all in a test. We let people drive down the road with, you know, 2,000 pound, 4,000 pound vehicles. And we trust that they'll not go 150 miles an hour and, uh, you know, drive with their feet. <laughs> you know? And sometimes somebody yeah. does, but I think we overall take it very seriously, right? I don't know if you, you might know this, Jason, but we actually, so we were lobby, we've been lobbying for, I don't know, five or six years, we've been lobbying for five or six years around updating the accreditation rule. And we had been pushing, we wrote a letter, a comment letter probably in 2013 around taking a test. It's exactly what you're saying for sophistication, not just money. They actually, when Title II was updated last year, they did insert this component of taking an exam, but it's very, we've had zero success trying to work with the agencies that be to actually implement a test that's approved because it needs to be approved by the SEC to be implemented. And so there's sort of a catch-22 still. So weird. They won't tell you which test to take. And I think some people went out and took not the Series 7, but some other Series 7-like account. Right. They basically said, okay, we're certified and we're going to start angel investing. And so this woman did it on campus with a bunch of other uh, college kids. And they basically said, you know, based on our interpretation of this, we're now sophisticated, basically. Interesting. 
Uh, but this has got to be done it, and it shouldn't be any more difficult than a driver's license test. Sorry. It shouldn't. So you can take a test, but it needs to be an accredited test that's approved by the SC. And we actually went with a Kaplan-like person. I'm not going to name them, but we we spoke with people at the SEC with them as a partner and we just kind of got an attraction. Perfect. So huh. we need to work on that, you know, make some progress, but it is in the rules that we should be able to do it. That's what should be happening. Well, think about that, what it must be like to work at that agency right now, or a number of these agencies with this much change going on and yeah. their lack of funding. Totally. You know, and then you look at ICOs, right? Which nobody brings up anymore, but there were thousands of ICOs. 99% of them were total scams, grifts, or totally incompetent. And everybody lost their money on those. And so they're going out and the SEC to this day is releasing, what is it? Five years later, four years later, they're actually like, you see these notifications like, oh, we just got this person in Honduras and this person in Spain. And they're literally doing enforcements on things from four years ago. Yeah. Now we have NFTs going on where people are painting the tape, creating fake trades, doing all kinds of crazy stuff with NFTs. Is that going to be another ICO wave where everybody loses their money or is it less dangerous? I don't know, but I, you know, I, I do think we have to fund those agencies and come up with some really better rules here so yeah. that we don't have to make it punitive for founders or innovation. We just need to have some basic rules of the road in terms of- Guidance. Yeah, totally. Yeah, some guidance. It's happening so fast. I mean, it's scaling so fast. Which part? Too. Oh, which part is scaling fast? I mean, basically like the you know digital asset-based stuff, whether it's NFTs it. or DAOs or tokens or protocols or DeFi. Or all, I mean, it's just it's just happening so fast. There's no way that agencies can keep up with that. I mean, they're saying it. They're saying we can't keep up with it, but like there have to be definitions, right? There there have to be at some point on all this stuff. Hey, I wanted to ask a question actually, um, maybe changing changing the topic a little bit, which is I'd love to hear actually you talk, Jason, but also you, Ryan, too. Like, you know, if if you read the news, the kind of overall thesis is, you know, tightening in our, you know, monetary policy, you're seeing choppiness in the markets, you're seeing tech valuations get pulled in. You know, the argument, of course, is that you're going to get multiple compression over 2022, 2023. So that's the kind of rotation. People are at least going sideways until they know more. But basically, like, you're seeing this kind of kind of happen and the great quantitative easing really of the past, you know, 10 years, but or longer, 13 years, but just the last two years, like putting a, you know an extra five trillion or six trillion or whatever it is on the Fed's balance sheet, like that's like we're not even talking about taking it off the balance sheet. We're just talking about stopping putting on the balance sheet. But like with all of that, there's been you know rising asset prices. There's inflation, inflation in asset prices and all asset prices, including alternatives. And so everyone's seen this growth in alternatives over the past two years. We've seen you know record numbers of private fundraises, record amounts of private equity, record amounts of crypto, record amounts of all this stuff. And does 2022 represent a a real pullback in startup valuations? Is the trickle down from big tech to startup valuations going to happen? How fast is that going to happen? And that maybe that's the first part of the question, just based on all that kind of context. And the, the second is really like, have the last two years, because everyone's been sitting on their couches or wherever, you know, sitting in front of their computers and have gotten more active. And as you said, there's all these people who are now involved in finance that haven't been in all these ways. Has there also just been like a structural behavior shift where 
even though valuations may change, the behavior is still going to be there where alternatives are just going to grow, grow, grow and, and be bigger. So I know that's like a loaded, very two, two significant questions. I'd love to hear from you, Jason, but also Ryan as well. Yeah, it's a great question. This is like five perfect storms of three or four different things all yeah. coming together. This is many different variables uh, acting at once. So because of inflation and because of the historic great performance of alternative assets, whether it's private equity or venture capital or angel investing, you know, people have been getting more interested in that market independent of what happened with the pandemic and stimulus. So we watched our syndicate grow when I was on AngelList for the first couple of dozen deals from a couple of hundred people. Then I left and did the syndicate.com. Now I've got 9,500 members. When my book came out five years, four or five years ago, it was maybe eight or 900 people. And now it's 10 times that. So the interest predates what happened in the pandemic. Then of course we have a pandemic. Everybody, the government puts so much money into the system. People are staying at home. People find out about these amazing new products, whether it's Coinbase or Robinhood. They start trading. They get more interest in public equities. And then uh, SPACs come out. So people can invest you know, just with any uh, app in a company that maybe is pre-product market fit, like a Rivian or something like that, or a Nikola. Yeah. And all of this comes together. And I think your question is, hey, what, what happens going forward? So people got very excited and they didn't look at fundamentals of companies. And at some point, every company is going to be judged on their earnings and their cash flow. And, and that's just historically what's always happened. So they were equating some company like Nikola with Tesla, or you know, they were equating a company like Rivian that just came out. I think it peaked at maybe 140 or 150 or more billion dollar with no cars in market. Uh, so you're saying it's worth more than Airbnb with you know, or Uber or you know, other companies with hundreds of millions of paying customers. It makes no sense. So that discerning or lack of discerning that was going on has now changed because I think people, a large group of people, tens of millions of people are realizing, okay, there's got to be some fundamental value here. So uh, you also have crypto projects that are getting valued at tens of billions of dollars and they have eight full-time employees. So they're literally getting valued at 7 billion an employee. When we would sell a company to Google in what was called an aqua hire, you know, a failure of a company, but a great team. The product failed, but the team was great. They would buy them for one, two, three, four, five million dollars, you know, depending on how good they were as developers. So this is disconnected from reality, and that's what's getting sorted out now. And so I do think this is going to be a pretty crazy year because I think that this that you have to then put Omicron on top of all this. I think that's going to get resolved. I think everybody is just going to play through like the NBA is play through the pandemic. Yeah. And if you're old or you're obese or you're at risk or compromised, you're going to shelter in place and, and take whatever precautions you feel is necessary. And the rest of the world is just going to get it. And they're going to just say like the NBA players are, listen, I'm going to get it, but I have to play basketball. That's what I do in my life. And I don't care if I get it. So we're going to come out of this pandemic. There's going to be all this money there. People are going to start spending it. And then the question becomes, do these investors become sophisticated enough to say, you know what? When I look at my portfolio, man, do I have these like unproven assets over here. I'm in Rivian. I'm in you know, Solana. I'm in Ethereum, Bitcoin, whatever. I'm buying NFTs that have no fundamental value. Should I also own some Disney that's been around for a while? Should I also buy my house, pay down my mortgage, buy a house, pay yeah. down my debt? And so I think that great uh, rebalancing will occur over time. Now, how quickly and will we have a crash? You know, nobody knows exactly. But fundamentally, the 
market, the economy is so strong right now. We have 11 million job openings. We have only 6 million people out of work. We've got 4.2% unemployment. Like the record low in our lifetime, I think is 3.7. And that's what it was right before the pandemic. So you have people who are resigning from jobs without other jobs. Bernie Sanders and Warren are fighting for a $15 minimum wage. Tesla and Amazon are paying over $20 an hour now. And they're giving stock options. And Amazon said, we'll pay for your associate's degree. So everything that was on the wish list of Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who were attacking Bezos and Elon and you know Tesla and Amazon over, they just blew past it. So the free market and the innovation that's going on is extraordinary. And there is massive wealth to the point at which people will spend $10,000 or $1,000 on an NFT, like a baseball card. That's how rich we are. And people will say, you know, I just don't want to do a manual labor job anymore. I'm not going to work unless it's something that I really want to do. And then 500,000 companies were created during the pandemic and that spiked. So people are now becoming freelance nation, which is what we thought would happen because of the internet 20 years ago. There was a cover of Wired that said like freelance nation. Everybody's going to just work for themselves. Yeah. So they were right. They just were off on the time period. So I think young people, these next generations are like, you know what? I know how to make money. I'll work two days a week. This is one of the things that people are arguing with the, the November non-farm payroll data, which is like, wait a minute, unemployment is down. We have all this, you know, it's because there's probably so many, I mean, the, the view is like, there's so much, you know, freelance economy activity, gig economy activity, freelance economy activity that isn't on a traditional payroll or startups, which are literally yeah. just happening, happening at, a, at a record pace. I mean, we yeah. all know, I mean, multiple people that are, you know, highly educated who are like, no, I'm working on this new thing, right? So there's so much that's probably underreported or unreported right now that is not really captured, which is awesome for startup culture. It's awesome for the work that all of us do, right? But um, it is, it's just so indicative of where we actually are. I think there's, on one hand, there's a secular growth, there's a secular change which is happening, which is... Um, Alternatives have outperformed public stocks and bonds for a long time now, and people didn't have access to them. So the Jobs Act is part of this change. There are other things that have under, have, have gone underway over the last you know decade that have allowed people to get access to not just startup investing, but like you said, private equity, real estate, private debt, these other alternative asset classes. And so I think over the prior to COVID, you sort of saw that th things continued to move online. More and more people are getting into alternatives, but when when COVID hit. And all of a sudden, people were sort of stuck at their desk on the internet a lot more. You just saw, and you saw, you've seen this with SPACs, with people, you know, this pent up demand to get into private companies, this fear that people, this missing out that people have had for a long time, where they've just seen other people getting rich on alternatives and, and getting into private companies earlier, and they've been locked out. And now that's opening up their SPACs. It's open up through what Seedinvest does, it's open up through crypto. And so I don't, I think that's accelerated. I firmly believe that, that that change is going to continue to um, proliferate regardless of sort of the individual cycles. But then, you know, on the other hand, it's clearly a ton of frothiness in the market. And um, I agree with what you said, J uh, Jason. I mean, at the end of the day, in the long term, companies would be valued on what value they create and what, you know, revenue earnings, et cetera. Those things matter in the long term. When that is going to change, I would have been wrong if you asked me the last few years. It's so hard to predict exactly what the catalyst will be. Uh, maybe it'll be interest rates. Maybe maybe it'll be something else. But I think a lot of times these things follow the public markets. If you look at sort of the Great Recession back in you know sort of 2007, uh, the public markets got hit really hard, and then pensions and endowments were over allocated to private equity and venture and 
And so they sort of they sort of uh, had less capital to deploy. That might be the, the end, end up being the catalyst. But I guess two things that I've I've seen since COVID hit, which I mean, Jason, I'd love your thoughts on these. What that two big changes that have happened in sort of early stage startup investments based on these sort of trends that we're talking about. One is I've seen a lot of investors, including very legit VC funds, that have basically dropped the idea of doing due diligence and and will kind oh. of write a check after a twenty minute phone call. Super scary. And uh, I think I, I think I know what you think about this trend. I mean, does this have staying power, or the, you know, what's going to change this? I have a second one as well. Yeah, it's truly scary. Yeah, I mean, that is the scariest thing that's going on here is that people are losing their discipline. Entry price matters. Governance matters. Uh, and diligence matters as an investor. So entry price, what did you pay relative to what exits are possible? So paying $100 million for a company that is pre-product market fit, hasn't finished their product, makes no sense. And many people have modeled out portfolios with you know, extreme results. That's the second trend, by the way, I was going to mention is that you're seeing founders all the time, you know, with the idea on a napkin that are raising at a value seed round evaluations of ten, tens of millions of dollars. And I know you always used to say the cardinal mistake of angel investing is basically don't get in too early. And, you know, we're seeing a ton of that. The valuation matters going in. Governance matters. So once the money's in, you need to run these companies properly. And we're seeing a really massive lack of governance. And then when you are deciding to invest, you really do need to have um, somebody diligence the company. And to show you how bad it's gotten, we've had one or two deals where uh, founders push back on us. It was two. And uh, we were interested in doing the deal and we had moved on to diligence and they were like, nobody's asking us for this. I'm like, well, you're raising $6 million and we're going to put in a million. You have the leads putting in you know, 1.5. So we're basically like a co-lead here. We just want to see IP assignments, that the company has in fact been incorporated, that you have a bank account, pretty, pretty that reasonable. you have bank statements. Uh, that you're not felons, you know, like all the standard stuff that you would normally do in a diligence process and that your LPs would expect you to do. And they're like, nobody else was asking for this. And literally somebody was like, yeah, we didn't have to show our PL and we don't want to show you our PL. And I was like, okay, well, this feels wow. like I didn't say this to them, but I said to my team, I was like, you know, and Elizabeth Holmes didn't show people, you know, her Edison machine. Uh, and that's why nobody in venture would invest. Like if you will not show these basic things. You it's know? so much tougher to take the stance that you're taking right now because the good deals are getting just, you know, they're they're oversubscribed by many times and they're going so quickly that it's it's hard for people to to stick to their guns with us. For me, it's very easy. You know, like I want to have discipline and I don't mind missing a deal. What I learned over my career was you don't have to hit every <laughs> shot. <laughs> You need, we operate in a basketball game where there are certain shots from the court that score 100 points. So imagine if there was like a magical place on the court where Steph Curry could put himself and that one shot was worth 100 points. He would run to it and shoot that shot all day long. It doesn't matter if it was the hardest shot in the world because the payoff would be so great. So if like you don't want to do diligence or you don't want to have a board and you've raised 10 million, like the bad behavior I'm seeing from investors, the stupid and or bad behavior I'm seeing from investors and then from founders to me is at a high watermark right now. It is, to me, the ultimate sign of a bubble is when people can get away from this stuff, you yeah. know, get away with this kind of stuff on both sides of the table. It's not like it's founder only. It's a level of entitlement and insanity that transcends, you know, like normal behavior. For example, you know, we had a founder who was like, we're going to do this next round. You don't get to take your pro rata, you don't get your board seat. And I was like, oh, okay. Cause we signed an agreement. You know, it's like a Delaware law thing, you know, like <laughs> together we own, 
you know, whatever, you know, double digit percentage of the company. We've been working on it with you for four years. And like, yeah, well, we're all going to quit if you uh, don't wave. Come on. I was like, okay. I was like, that's not true because you have this term sheet from an incredible investor at a very high valuation. So I don't know who told you to play poker with Jason Calacanis and bluff. Yeah. Seems like an interesting company. I'd actually, I was looking for a company to run. That's so, so funny. (laughs) <laughs> and I was like, yeah, okay. Uh, so you want to do a CEO search or do you want yeah. to sell your shares back to the company? I mean, what's the plan here for your exit is what I said to the person. And they're like, well, we don't want to exit. I'm like, <laughs> let's be honest. You're not exiting. You're This is like whatever million, tens of millions of value for yeah. each of you individually. So what are we talking about here? Like, are you trying to bully me? Like, I would never do this to you. I would never say you got to give me two board seats and another... of the company in warrants. I wouldn't do that. That would be bullying, you know? So it's very weird, very weird behavior going down. And I'm happy to sit out deals where people are exhibiting that behavior, you know, Uh, or happy to sell my shares in companies where that happens. It's happened, I think, three or four times in 350 investments. So about 1% of the people I invest in, I think, wind up exhibiting this kind of what I'll just call crazy behavior. And three out of four times it's happened in the last, you know, during this peak. You know, I say like last six months. So not surprising. Before that, it was like one in every three hundred. But I think this moment is making people lose their minds. So the question is, it kind of comes back to like startups raising capital on the internet, and you know, kind of this whole model. It seems like most startups, or many at least, but many to most startups. And when I say startups, I'm talking about late stage growth all the way, you know, from seed to late stage growth or whatever could benefit from creating an option for broader participation in their companies. Could could benefit from a ecosystem perspective, a customer perspective, a brand awareness perspective, a just, you know, kind of perspective. But the percentage of startups that actually do open up a sleeve of capital to the to a broad base of, of private investors is still tiny. It's just like a tiny, tiny percent. Yeah. Why is that? I mean, I, I know we have perspective on that, but like- I certainly do, yeah. Yeah, like how do we convince more startups that this is a good idea? What do you yeah, think? Yeah. Okay, so I've done it for Insight. I did it on your platform and it's Invest. And what's wonderful about it is when you email your users and say, would you like to participate? You can have some upside. They will be loyal to you forever. It would be yeah. like- you know, you invest in a local ice cream store, like what ice cream store are you going to this weekend? What ice cream store are you telling your friends about? What ice cream store are you buying eight pints of ice cream and giving them out as, you know, gifts or whatever, or having a party? And, you know, it really does impact your behavior participation. And I think we're seeing that in the token sales uh, or board ape yacht club, or you see it in uh, club memberships, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, And if you join, if you move to a certain neighborhood and there is a tennis club or whatever club, it's a stakeholder model of participation. And it's wonderful. So your question was, why don't people do it? It's a little bit arduous and painful and you quickly can fill up your round. The best companies can quickly fill up their rounds. So historically, there's been a little bit of negative signal that the people who do this are people who couldn't clear market previously with investors. And the venture capitalists, a good cohort of them are like, please don't do this. We'll just give you the extra million. So if you're raising 6 million, we'll give you all six. Don't carve out 500K. Don't carve out million. So it takes a founder, has to have a little bit of chutzpah, a little bit of backbone. And so they said when I was the first uh, syndicate on AngelList and I did com.com, People are like, it'll never work. It'll destroy companies, da, 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 da. These people in the syndicates are going to 
you know, wreak havoc and they're going to leak information. That never happened. In fact, what universally, Calm or Density, which were my first and my 10th deals, I think, on AngelList, they both became unicorns. And what universally people told me was, these were some of the most helpful people I've had. And they put in the smallest checks. So they had people, we had one company. Right, Conviction engagement, like all these yeah, things. Yeah. They're right? not doing it strictly like as a day job. They're doing it for the the joy and the passion and the fun of it. So we had a company that sold into entertainment companies, really cool software. They needed an introduction to Disney. They emailed their list of 150 syndicate investors from the syndicate.com. And when they did, like six or seven people got back and said, oh, I used to work at Disney. I work at Disney, or I know people at Disney, one of those three. And they had asked for a specific introduction. And before people responded, they just automatically did the introduction. So the person got introduced three times right after they sent their monthly update. And the person was like, you can stop asking people to introduce me. I don't know what flooding you're doing here. And now they have Disney as a major client because somebody at Disney was like, yeah, I know that person. I was at an offsite with them. And so just but one example, I think every company should save 10%, 20% of their equity for their customers other stakeholders or just people who are super fans of it. And I think we'll see these pools of capital get more active. I think DAOs are an example of it. Syndicates are an example of it. Equity crowdfunding and founders are getting into it. I I think you'll see it over time, especially because you can do it every year. So my plan is to just do it every other year as a way to just tell people, hey, if you want to put more money in or whatever. And I, as a fund manager now have 9,500 people in the syndicate you know, I told some of the big LPs, like, I really don't need to go raise a fund from the major endowments in the world. I could just raise, you know, a 25 to $50 million fund with one email to my list of 9,500 and never go on the road again and never have to put myself in front of, you know, 10 people in an investment committee, do five meetings. I can just press a button and, it, and they're more than happy to put in small amounts of money. So I think the world's changing. I think DAOs are very analogous to syndicates just without a legal framework yet. Uh, yeah, outside of that, I mean, people, we need more case studies. A lot of people, you know, lawyers included, are stuck in their ways, are used to doing things a certain, a certain way. And we need more, we need more case studies to, to show that this works well and that these companies, can, these customers can add value. I mean, a good example, a company called Heliogen, which was founded by Bill Gross of Idea Lab. He raised money on Seedinvest um, about four years ago. And he's going to be going public. I mean, we got into got a thousand sort of accredited and non-accredited investors in at a twenty million dollar pre-money valuation. He's going public, assuming they get the shareholder approval in a week at a two billion dollar valuation, right? What's the name of that company? Heliogen. What do they do? It's a solar company. I'm sh- yeah. assuming you probably know Bill Gross from. Oh, I know Bill LA Gross very well. Yeah, yeah. I know you lived in LA. Yeah, it's a great story. Having this, the stories there. Uh, there was the you know uh, fascinating raise. It's actually ongoing at Crowdcube in the UK with Klarna, where they're like, no, we're going to provide, you know, late stage access to this company, right? And and it's totally an example, Jason, is, yeah, of course, like the existing private equity guys are like, oh, you don't, you don't need the capital, we can do this, you know, that kind of thing. But it's it's actually more on principle that this is better business is to have stakeholder participation. And I think just getting the mechanics of it more streamlined, getting the experience more streamlined, certainly more uh, straightforward rules like Reg CF, uh, allowing uh, allowing for these sleeves of capital to be meaningful, but not require like a full SEC qualification and, uh, and all this stuff is all, uh, all going to happen. Heliogen, I mean, just think about if you're investing in this company as just a civilian, 
You're investing alongside Steve Case, Bill Gates. Yeah, exactly. And the billionaire Patrick Sun Xiong. Is that how you pronounce his name? I hope I pronounced it correctly. I think correct, so. But I think so. He's yeah, very you're right. famous. You're right. Yeah, um, in LA. I mean, he's like LA, a person in LA or something. From Nand Capital. Like, he's very famous Second. too. So, like, yeah. the ability to participate in these things has just never existed before. It's pretty amazing. No, I agree. It's uh, it's one of the one of those case studies where I mean it's probably the first time in U.S. history where non-accredited investors got into a startup that went public, it became a public unicorn, and so sharing those stories with other companies. And Jeremy mentioned, I mean, Reg CF. You know, when you got when Inside.com used Reg CF a couple of years ago, you could only raise a million dollars. You had to go through a bunch of steps, and now you can raise up to five million dollars. It's a big difference. So it's amazing. Yeah. Most people don't realize that yet. Yeah, it'll it'll take time, but you know, syndicates took time too, and now. Almost regularly, seed rounds are being done with a syndicate or two involved. You know, we're seeing that's like the big trend for us is a lot of folks coming out of accelerators are like, only need a million dollars. I'll just do you know these two syndicates and a bunch of angels. So one syndicate puts in two fifty, another one puts in three fifty, and then angels fill in from there. And uh, it's really cool, you know. And you only get one LLC on your cap table, and you get access to those twenty or. Right. 250 investors, which is just magical in terms of cap table management, I think. Well, this has been a great, great conversation, man. Awesome, guys. Really appreciate you having me on. And it's been great to be partners and watch your growth. Good job uh, with uh, USDC, Jeremy. I think you're uh, like very brave of you to go out there and, and lead from the front Yeah, and uh, continue to success with it. I know it's like, can't be easy for you to be there like serial entrepreneur doing everything by the books and like it's chaos around you. And then people are like, oh, you're causing chaos. And it's like, no, yeah, <laughs> I'm the yeah. guy trying to do it all right. <laughs> the guy next to you is like, woohoo, runs out on the check. <laughs> I'm, I'm a show patient up. guy. I'm a patient guy. I had a call this morning with staffers from a very prominent senator's office. And they're just like, they're, I'm just like, you know, no, you got to under, you know, here's what we're actually trying to do. Here's what this really is. Yep. You know, signal noise, you know, trying to be part of the signal. Yeah. Well, yeah. the, it feels like, I don't, I don't know, Jeremy, just a question for you. It feels like this process that's going on is like slightly different than what we saw five or 10 years ago, which is the government seems much more knowledgeable. Yeah. And it didn't seem like a silly conversation. These are starting to seem like meaningful conversations that are like adjacent to legislation as opposed to like, okay, boomer grandpa conversations when like Facebook came up you know, 10 years ago or crypto came up five or 10 years ago, people were just like, what? I understand that this happens on the internet. And it's like, oh my God, this person prints out their email. Like these people are trading in crypto in some cases. They own Ethereum or Bitcoin. They have kids who are on Wall Street bets. So they, it does feel like that, right? Like, it's- Yeah, absolutely. Way, way more. I mean, it's just the, the sort of penetration of this into society, right? And the connectivity of the of these issues and the level of engagement, education, and yeah, proximity to legislation. I think that's all all spot on. So it's definitely emblematic of of uh, I think a very very positive shift. You know, it's gonna be an amazing couple of years ahead for sure. Awesome. Well, continued success, everybody. Have a great holiday. Thanks, yeah, you Jason. too. All right. Cheers. Talk to you Bye. soon. Bye.